If you're going to go down a rabbit hole, I highly recommend one on Russian organized crime. The rabbit hole I went down the other day was on a term called a roof. Basically, 80% of all enterprises in Russia buy a roof from the mafia. This roof typically costs 20 to 30% of their profits and is used to prevent against extortion or blackmailing. The government has no interest in helping you in these situations, and sometimes they're the ones blackmailing you in the first place, so you have to get yourself a roof. The other option for a business person is to get a roof from corrupt policemen, of which there are plenty. These corrupt police will then protect you from the mafia and the blackmailers, which kind of sounds like what regular police should do, until you remember that they have to pay extra under the table for this, and then it goes back to feeling nice and corrupt. Apparently, the police and organized crime are weirdly civil about who gets to be the roof for who. It's first come, first serve. If business picks the police, the mafia won't hassle them, and vice versa. As long as they're paying someone. As long as the business knows they can't survive without a roof, the system keeps on going and everyone stays fat and happy. Except the business owners, who eventually need to turn corrupt too. As Bruce Springsteen told us in last week's episode, they've got the type of debt no honest man can pay. Today we're going to talk about a question I get constantly. Am I good enough? Entrepreneurship is the land of imposter syndrome, and this question, am I good enough, sinks more startups than competitors or lack of funding or anything else ever could. It may sound like that's got nothing to do with the Russian mafia and roofs, but it does. We'll get there. I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, we'll help you validate it before you quit. Our 25th cohort of the Accelerator for Idea Stage Founders with Full-Time Jobs is filled, but the next virtual cohort starts January 13th. You can apply at gettacklebox.com. If you're interested in a self-serve version of the Accelerator that lets you move at your own pace and has a lot less of me yelling at you about interviewing more customers, Sign up to be a beta tester at gettacklebox.com backslash self-serve, all one word. We'll let a limited group in starting December 1st. And last week's pod was recorded before the election. Now the election's over. You don't have an excuse to not build stuff anymore. Listen to last week's episode, which wound up being one of our most popular ever, on closing open loops and being resilient if you haven't. After the pod from a few weeks ago where we talked about how to start a wine company, I got a bunch of emails, probably the most emails we've ever gotten after an episode. The emails all basically said the same thing. That wine idea is amazing. I want to start it. Me and my partner pour out half a bottle of wine every week. We've tried the cans, but they aren't good, so on and so forth. Then the email ended with some version of, if you ever end up starting that, let me know. Or if you ever have someone pursue that and they need a co-founder, call me. Or the third most heartbreaking response, which I got and I counted seven times, do you think I'm qualified to start something like this? Am I good enough? Your brain kills more startup ideas than your lack of preparation ever could. I responded to a bunch of these am I prepared to start at emails with the same question. What's the best case and worst case scenario of you pursuing this startup idea? Here's one response that was representative of all the others. It said, and I quote, best case, I build a successful business. Worst case, I lose my job, I lose my house, my significant other leaves me and I'm left having burnt through all my savings during a bad economy and I'll probably have to take loans out and move in with my parents. That person didn't even have kids. When I asked people who did have kids, forget about it. They all but said that their seven-year-old would have to be out working in the corner so the family could survive. This is the type of response I got from everyone. 
Best case was one bland sentence. The thing worked. Worst case was a horror show filled with vivid details of all the terrible things that were going to happen. It was zero sum. The startup didn't work and everything else fell directly off a cliff. This is cognitive. It's called loss aversion and we can't control it. We value things we have way more than things we don't. Losing something you already have is cognitively two to three times more painful than the satisfaction that you get from gaining something with similar value. This is chemical. It's deeply ingrained. I've talked about it before and I'll talk about it again because it's really important. It's holding you back. So our brain becomes adept at visualizing downside and stinks at visualizing upside, which is a real problem if you're trying to get motivated to do something. You can't be what you can't see and your brain innately just doesn't understand what running a successful business looks like. So it certainly doesn't understand what running through the process and all the value you get from that would look like. I've worked with thousands of idea stage founders at this point, and I'll tell you exactly what the downside looks like for most people. The worst downside I've ever seen was blown savings. And there's of course the opportunity cost of spending or not making money when you could have been making money that can pile on. Finances are also always a personal thing. If you're deep in financial debt, the risk probably isn't worth it right now. But for people with relatively healthy financials, the worst I've ever seen is people lose the equivalent of $100,000 in money spent and opportunity cost, sometimes a little bit more. That absolutely stings, but again, it's the worst case that has happened in less than 1% of the founders that I've seen. But let's look at it deeper. What actually happens when you pursue a startup idea and it doesn't end up working? We know the downside. You're very capable of visualizing that. But what's the upside? First, you'll get more employable, way more employable, immediately. You still have all the skills that made you good at whatever job you had before, and you can almost certainly go back to that exact job or a competitor. But you'll also have two new things. First, you won't be a house cat anymore. You'll spend some period of time eating what you kill. You'll force yourself to create something from nothing. You'll need to summon every skill in your repertoire to make a product, make sales, acquire customers. This will fundamentally change the way you're wired. You'll be more self-sufficient and far more comfortable figuring stuff out. You won't just ask Nancy in accounting how to do something when a problem comes up, you'll figure it out on your own. You'll also take more risks because you'll realize how to actually evaluate risk. You'll have seen real risk up close and you'll realize it's almost never as risky as you thought. You'll also likely have a few small risks pay off really big. You'll realize that most people don't take the type of risks that pay off 10x their downside because they can't visualize the upside. Now you can. Second, you'll find what we call your layerable skills. I really dislike Scott Adams, the guy who created Dilbert, but he has a fantastic quote on this. He says, everyone has at least a few areas in which they could be in the top 25% with some effort. In my case, I can draw better than most people, but I'm hardly an artist. And I'm not any funnier than the average stand-up comedian who never makes it big, but I'm funnier than most people. The magic is that few people can draw well and write jokes. It's the combination of the two that makes me and what I do so rare. And when you add in my business background, suddenly I have a topic that few cartoonists could hope to understand without living it. Scott had three innate skills that added up to something unique and very valuable, especially when he understood that those skills were unique and that he had them and he began to work hard at each. That formula makes sense. But the question is, how do you find what you're actually good at? It usually isn't by taking a job out of college for whatever reason we take jobs out of college. The recruiter liked you or you thought you could make a lot of money or whatever. And then you stay in that role and learn those skills needed for that role for 10 years. That's not a good way to develop and understand what you're good at. 
You learn what you're good at by trying lots of things, by tossing yourself in the deep end and seeing what you can do to help yourself swim. During my second startup in 2010, I learned that I could write better than most people. And I realized that I loved doing it. I'd never taken a writing class. I'd never written anything other than a history paper. And I'd worked in finance for a few years and lived in an Excel sheet there. But now I had to get people interested in my startup idea. So I wrote a few stories and submitted them to places like TechCrunch and Forbes and Fast Company, and boom, I got published. And from that, I got customers. If I'd stayed in finance, I'd never have found that skill. Now, if I ever want to take a job at VC, the whole reason that I was in finance in the first place, that skill of writing and storytelling and the following that's come along with it makes me far more employable and differentiated than if I just stayed on that finance track. There's a saying that everyone's got a couple of alternative lives they could be leading. This quote makes sense to you and you know it because you know there's another world where you're a screenwriter or a chemist or a teacher. The innate skills you have that make you think that you could excel in those things are worth exploring, even if you don't end up going into those fields. They could almost certainly add skill layers, add depth to what you do now. Third, the network. You'll be forced to meet lots of people and diversify your network when you start a company. Your value is exponentially linked to your network. Further, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You'll get to move your network and expand it, and you'll get to shift around the five people you're around most. These are things that'll diversify you. They'll make you better. So the real worst case of your startup is that you'll be thrown off your current trajectory in the short term. In the long term, the new skills and mindset will allow you to lap whatever path you were on. You'll make up the 100K or whatever it is in no time. And you'll almost certainly not want to go back to the job you were in in the first place. You probably chose it haphazardly. Startups allow you to be purposeful. People treat what they're currently doing like a roof in Russia. Yep, we're back to the Russia thing. Not just their job, but everything they have. They think they need it. They think it protects them. But that feeling is really just holding you back. You're selling yourself short. The options aren't success or chaos. There are a million shades of success that are far more likely than any of the chaos outcomes you've dreamed up. The problem is you can't visualize them. The unknown in the startup world actually isn't really that dangerous. It's almost always additive, but only if you try it out. And like we talk about all the time, this process is incremental. You don't dive in right away and give everything up. But there's one more thing likely holding you back. Imposter syndrome is prevalent in the startup world, but it's more prevalent in the pre-startup world. I think it all comes from one core misconception. You as the entrepreneur are not your startup. If your startup doesn't become successful, it doesn't mean that you personally are a failure. The biggest problem imposter syndrome causes is making founders think they need unrealistic levels of preparation before they can start something. They need all green lights. They need their finances, their personal life, everything to be in alignment. I don't want to pile on Quibi. You can listen to the pod I did when they launched about how they'd already failed before publishing one show. I'll put it in the show notes. But look at those founders. Hollywood royalty with all the connections in the world and $1.8 billion in funding pre-launch. And they lasted like six months. They took one step out of the gate on the fastest horse in the world and fell flat on their face. Startups aren't about preparation. They're about velocity of learning. Everyone steps in as an imposter and you move away from being an imposter based on how quickly you make yourself an expert. These things aren't innate, they're learned. There's a story I love and I simply cannot find the source. I read it somewhere and will try and hunt it down and put it in the show notes. The story goes that there's a school in the UK for young artists, like middle school aged kids. 
There's an intro to sculpture class that's been running an experiment for years. On the first day of class, the room is split in two. One side of the class is told that they'll be graded on the number of sculptures they make. So if they make 100 sculptures, even if they're terrible, they'll get an A. The other side will be graded solely on their best sculpture. If they only make one sculpture all semester, that's fine if it's fantastic, they'll get an A. They're then taught the same material over the course of the semester. At the end, all the sculptures are put on display. Other teachers from the school walk through and pick out their top 10. Year in and year out, the top 10 sculptures are all produced by the side of the class being graded on the sheer number of sculptures they produce. Startups aren't about where you are when you start. They're about the process, about getting reps in, about learning the skills that you have that you can layer on to continue diversifying yourself and becoming unique. The idea, the customer, your skill set, your value, they'll all start as one thing and immediately change as the velocity of your learning increases, as you learn what customers actually want, how they actually buy, how they actually share or learn about new products. You don't show up with this stuff, you learn it. So the questions I get about, am I good enough, or can I start this company, or I'm not the type of person who can do this sort of thing, right? Those are painful, because no one is when they start. And thinking you are usually leads to results like Quibi. So to all the people who asked if they should start the wine business in the email this week, yes, you should. And that doesn't mean losing everything you've worked on immediately. It means going through the process we've outlined in this podcast before. Because the idea is about velocity of learning, but you, your skill set and ability as an entrepreneur, is about velocity of learning as well. About finding your layerable skills and putting them into your business. Most people don't start out knowing their own skill sets. It takes some time. Take it seriously. Set aside a few hours a week to practice, to make the startup equivalent of sculptures, to find the skills you didn't know you had and practice them so that you can become the best possible version of yourself. We started with the Russian mob and it's a great place to end. They succeed through fear. You need their protection and you can't survive without them. The startup world has somehow created the same level of fear. You aren't good enough to survive in it. And mostly it's because the stories of people who had to sleep in their cars are far more interesting than the stories of people who work 10 hours a week for 18 months validating and building their businesses in the margins before they quit their job and launched it. Everything doesn't have to be as dramatic as sleeping in your car. It's also partially because the people inside want to shut the door behind them. They don't want you in as competition. I met with some great founders the other day who were starting a hilariously named dating app called Foreplay. They're working really hard, but they're still consulting two days a week and building their startups the other five. This allows them to have enough money to live and not stress out too hard while continuing to test and build their skills in their startup. There are a million ways to get the reps in and an unending list of skills that you'll acquire that don't come into that simple mental math of either I'll succeed or I'm going to lose everything I've ever worked for. People misunderstand what pursuing something requires. It doesn't require putting your soul and self-worth and everything else you've ever built to this point on the line. Losing everything isn't really on the table. To start, it just requires a few hours a week for a few weeks or months to practice and learn. The upside is limitless and the downside is capped, not the other way around. So stop emailing me about whether you should start X or Y or whether you're good enough to survive in this world. You are. Now get going. This is the Idea to Startup podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll get back to more tactical stuff next week. The emails about whether people are worthy of building something or not just really bothered me, and I had to get that out. If you got this far and you have questions about logistics, tactics, you're going to start the wine idea and you want to talk about how, shoot me an email at brian at gettacklebox.com. 
We've also got tons of tactical resources and a bunch of earlier episodes of the podcast talking about that tactical stuff. Get the resources at gettacklebox.com. Have a great week.